Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, June 24th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. GlaxoSmithKline is having a bit of an existential crisis. Our colleague Matt Herper will join us to talk about the present peril and cloudy future of the story drug maker. Next, Stats Nicholas St. Fleur wrote an excellent story about the alarming rise of colorectal cancer deaths among young men, accompanied by a deeply personal video in which he gets a colonoscopy himself. He joins us to talk about the project. And we'll start with some quick takes on This Week in Biotech, but first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT, and I'm here with Charles Fuchs, Head of Oncology Product Development at Genentech. Charlie, I know the role of inclusivity is widely discussed within biotech, but why is it so critical, especially for cancer treatment? Well, Angus, at Genentech, we believe that inclusivity is essential. We ask ourselves every step of the way, how can our clinical trials reflect real-world disease demographics and How can we gather data that are more representative of the patient populations we treat to create a future where every person with cancer receives medicines that are right for them? We're asking these questions to deliver on the promise of personalized care and to optimize treatment outcomes for all cancer patients. Join us in asking these bigger questions at gene.com forward slash ask bigger questions that's g-e-n-e dot com forward slash ask bigger questions so guys once again it feels like um alzheimer's dominates the news and this podcast uh, and we had some news this morning which is thursday morning on eli Lilly. Yeah, um, they got breakthrough therapy designation for donanumab, which is um, a an Alzheimer's drug also targeting amyloid beta plaques, uh, similar to aducanumab, the, the drug we talk about most frequently in the Alzheimer's space on this podcast, um, that's completed phase two. And there was, of course, speculation after um, Biogen got accelerated approval uh, for aducanumab that Lilly would be close on its heels. And indeed, this morning, the company confirmed that it was. It plans to file under an accelerated approval pathway later this year. Yeah, that's a surprise, right? Because um, back when Lilly announced those those phase two data results, and that was back, like, you know, they presented it back in March. You know, they their plan at that time was, you know, we're going to do a phase three study, a larger phase three study that had already started, and we're going to wait for those data to read out before they potentially filed. But now kind of, I guess they're sort of looking at, they're looking at Biogen and seeing what Biogen did and saying, hey, well, if they can do it, so can we. So yeah, so here they go. They're going to file and they're going to seek accelerated approval for their drug. And I think one of the fascinating things about this situation is that even though they're potentially, I mean, they, they're clearly behind in, in getting to the market. One thing that, Adam, you pointed out actually weeks ago is that in terms of the confirmatory evidence gathering, they may actually be ahead because they've already begun this large phase three clinical trial, which perhaps could provide that evidence, right? Yeah, I mean, that could give them some bit of a leg up in that, right? Like you said, they, they, their what would be a confirmatory study, phase three, is already underway. Uh, I think it's supposed to read out like 
2023, if I remember correctly. Um, so that sort of puts them in good position. There is a downside to this in that, you know, that phase two study that we refer to of uh, the Lilly drug, it was a small study. I mean, Damien, you wrote and you wrote a lot about that data when it first when it came out early this year. I think it was something a little over like 220 patients worth of data, which is not that much. That's right. Yeah. So so Lilly's antibodies seemed to reduce those toxic brain plaques amyloid uh, that we've been talking about so much recently at a more powerfully, I guess, than, than perhaps the data we've seen from Biogen. But as you said, it's from a much smaller study. And what might be most important in the eyes of the FDA, which in defending its decision to approve Biogen's drug, pointed out that they had more than 3,000 patients worth of safety data to back up the idea that Aduhelm um, was was worth approving, and Lily's treatment just it just doesn't have that many by virtue of how long it's been studied. So that could come up as you know in this future deliberation they'll have with the FDA as to whether this is approvable. But looking further ahead, you know, to your point about Lily's phase three trial, I think that's that's important to consider. But also in what I guess is the developing market for new Alzheimer's treatments, it's worth considering that. Aduhelm is meant to be basically just dosed in perpetuity. And actually, our colleague Megan Molteni had a great story Thursday morning about how neurologists are kind of struggling with that concept. You know, how do you know when to stop dosing? How do you know when the drug's working, etc.? Lily, by contrast, at least in its clinical trials, is dosing donanumab basically until patients have a certain level of amyloid, basically until the drug has cleared X amount of plaque from the brain, then Lilly considers the drug to have done its job and stops dosing them. If that carries through into this down-the-road potential approval for denanumab, the market might look quite different depending on how much Lilly charges for it because they would be selling a product where they'd say, look, you take it for X number of months, X number of years. If it's not working by X point, stop taking it because it's not going to work for you. And if it is working, then we'll be able to measure that and you can stop taking it because it's already worked. So it could conceivably be a more cost-effective therapy um, in that down-the-road head-to-head competition they might have. I've also seen speculation just this morning, you know, when the news came out that given all of the backlash to the price that Biogen sent, $56,000 on a list price basis per year per average patient, you know, four to five times higher than what people expected, that Lilly could significantly undercut that price if and when it comes to the market and, and just kind of destroy the model that Biogen is creating. Adam, do you think they might do that? I mean, it, it's such an amazing scenario to think about. And, you know, I mean, again, this whole story is crazy, right? I mean, I feel like every day we wake up and there's like some new twist to the <laughs> Alzheimer's story. But I mean, you're right, Meg. I mean, what would stop Lily from like even just slightly discounting the drug compared to what Biogen uh, is charging? I mean, Biogen, you know, that price, I mean, I think it really shocked a lot of people and angered a lot of people, right? I mean, there's been all this speculation and, and calculations about, you know, how this could bankrupt Medicare. I mean, you can imagine the temptation for Lily. I mean, all of the negative headlines Biogen has received in recent weeks, they could get the reciprocal of that as this sort of white knight coming in. And then furthermore, I know we talked about this at some length, you know, Biogen's business is, you know, has been largely stagnant. There's been a lot of pressure on the company to find new sources of growth. So there were ostensibly pressures on them to set as high a price as possible. Lilly, by contrast, is a massive pharmaceutical company with large and successful treatments for diabetes and many other conditions. They don't have the same sort of bottom line PNL pressure that Biogen might have. So not only is there the temptation to be the hero of the day, but also, you know, it's not as imperative for them to really turn this into a massive margin moneymaker. 
the last thing I'll say, I think, about this is I, I do wonder if there will be differentiation. It will not be the last. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Every time I say that, it's never the last. Um, differentiation based on the the clinical performance of the drugs and, you know, the data supporting their use. I mean, we're going to see Lilly file based on the phase two data that are already out there. Um, and I guess I... I didn't follow it closely enough to know, you know, how do you stack the phase two data Lily has published versus all of the data we've seen on aducanumab from the, you know, first failed, you know, phase three clinical trials, but then one worked. And then all of the supplementary stuff that we saw through the FDA. Is there a way of comparing these two drugs and saying the Lily one might work better or the, the uh, dreaded cross trial comparison? I know. <laughs> But like doctors are going to have to choose which drug oh, yeah. to use. Yeah. And, I mean, there are ways of telling. No, absolutely. I mean, everyone's going to do it, right? I mean, <laughs> and we already have in some ways. And, and I think, you know, each side came with massive caveats. Adam, as you mentioned, the Lilly trial was very promising, but they used a different endpoint as the primary in terms of measuring um, whether the- Did they do this on purpose so you can't compare the drugs, honestly? <laughs> no, it's conceivable. But, you know, to that point, so they, it's very difficult to compare them. But also, you know, anyone who wanted to disparage any claims Lily might make would say, well, that trial's too small to be able to say that this is replicable. And anybody, as we know very well, who wants to disparage Biogen's claims can point out I mean, how much time do you have? The issues with the supporting evidence of Adjuhelm. So, I mean, ostensibly, you could say that if there are losers, so to speak, in this situation, it is those neurologists who already face this very difficult process of answering questions about Adjuhelm, considering the public evidence. And if Lily wins approval based on these data, we'll just have to answer a different set of difficult questions about that treatment. Well, continuing on the Alzheimer's uh, front, you, you guys wrote a story, and it feels like ages ago, but it was just like two days ago, about um, the FDA released a bunch of documents explaining how it approved um, Aduhelm. What, what did we learn from those? Well, you know, as we've heard, right, the FDA has come under this withering criticism about the decision to, well, I guess withering criticism from certain people uh, about, you know, this decision to approve uh, Aduhelm. And, and I think there's been this effort for the FDA to sort of justify the decision, to explain their decision. So they... They released a bunch of documents that, you know, that were basically created during the review process that, you know, that explains, it goes into more detail about exactly how they underwent this review and how they came to the conclusion to approve Aduhelm. And um, we got access to those documents. Um, they're now publicly, they're publicly posted on the FDA's website. But yeah, it was pretty interesting in that what we, what we found, and according to this document, again, these are documents that the FDA provided. So there were these three crucial meetings meetings involving top officials at the FDA that took place in basically March and April of this year, March of April of 2021, where they basically hashed out this plan. This is where, according to these documents, the FDA decided that accelerated approval was the way that they were going to approve the drug. I mean, it also highlighted what we already know is that the biostatisticians inside the FDA uh, were opposed, right? They, they were dissenting they didn't believe that the drug should be approved. We already knew that. That sort of came out in the documents again. But again, it was it was really interesting to sort of read this kind of narrative that emerged of like these three meetings where like everyone, all the top people, they have to get together and they sort of go around the room, and you know they, this is this is the this is the agreed upon plan. And then obviously we know that you know they followed through on that and the drug was approved. And I feel like having gone through those, I think it was eighty three pages of documents. Obviously, I appreciate the FDA's transparency, and I hope there's even more. But it's hard for me to imagine anyone who had already made up their mind about this 
changing it, which is to say, if you think the FDA threw out the rule book and um, you know, went way over its skis in making this approval, you will read this and see evidence that supports your conclusion. If you believe that the FDA has evolved and was being ecumenical and considering all the evidence and doing everything it could um, to, to really understand the data, then you will find evidence for that. So guys, I think, you know, maybe one of the last, the, the finale of our uh, giant opening on uh, Alzheimer's to the podcast this week maybe could be Janet Woodcock's comments this week. Um, stats, uh, Nick Florco actually had a great interview with her that published Thursday morning um, where he noted she's, quote, not that concerned, unquote, about the, <laughs> the criticism that the FDA has gotten over its decision to approve the drug. And um, she also addressed comments she made earlier that got a lot of attention, um, where she said the FDA needs to move beyond empirical evaluation of certain drugs, which one would think is sort of what the FDA does. That, that's um, going to make heads explode, <laughs> I think. It did, I think. <laughs> We're embracing a vibes-based approval process. But do you guys think she has a point there? Well, I think her point was that this isn't that much of a change, you know, that Congress created this or, or you know, authorized this accelerated approval pathway and has urged the agency time and again to use it more. And I, I kind of see where she's coming from. And she cited, you know, uh, the the embrace of accelerated approval in the 1990s with new treats and treatments for HIV, which was controversial among people in sort of the regulatory space at the time and is looked back laudatorily now. Um, so she's kind of making a point that all of the recent criticism is mistaking uh, basically like what's, what the FDA has long been empowered to and encouraged to do with some kind of change at the FDA. And I see where she's coming from, although at the same time, the criticisms are, are, are obviously very cogent as well. And we'll be back next week with the latest twists and turns in the Alzheimer's saga. As the amyloid beta turn. <laughs> GlaxoSmithKline, the storied British drug maker, is in a fight for its future. Facing dwindling revenues and the potential for a shareholder revolt, the company spent hours this week making the case to investors that the current regime can right the ship. Stats Matthew Herper made the decision on behalf of all of us with our thanks to listen to those many hours of presentation. And he had some awesome takes um, in his Twitter feed on what was being presented there. He joins us now to talk about what's going on with GSK. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's always great to be here. So Matt, set the stage for this week's Glaxo meeting. Like, what, Why are they getting everyone together to, to chat? Well, there's been this big milestone coming up for a while, which is that they're going to spin off their consumer division, which is combined with Pfizer's consumer division. It's going to be this giant consumer company. And that is supposed to fund the creation of what they refer to as new GSK, this new um, drug company that's going to be research-based. This is very similar to the moves Pfizer has made to slim itself down. But the idea is that that is going to be a drug company with a great pipeline. And the, the thing that they spent a lot of time trying to convince people is that they have a great pipeline. Um, so there was a lot of detail about both the financials and about what, uh, what pipeline assets they're excited about. So I feel like lurking or, or overshadowing in some cases this conversation is the presence of Elliott Management, an activist investor firm that has taken a large stake in GSK, and history tells us when they take large stakes in companies, they agitate for things to change at those companies. So how did that affect the presentation itself and the perception thereof? It may have affected the presentation itself and that it seemed like a lot of the executives were um, very prepared and trying to pack 
a lot of information, sometimes too much information into their presentations. But uh, it, it definitely affects the perception in that it's not exactly clear what Elliot's looking for. At one point, it was reported that they were looking to spin off the vaccine business, which is kind of the jewel in the GlaxoSmithKline crown. Um, but there have also been comments that they think maybe a different CEO other than Emma Walmsley, who um, has been running GSK for a few years, might help this new GSK. And there were suggestions maybe Walmsley should run the consumer business. Um, so there's there was a lot of questions from investors and also on a press call in the morning about well, what are you guys going to do? And GSK's answer is basically they believe in staying the course. They believe that Emma Walmsley and Hal Barron, who's their uh, very well-known head of R&D, um, are on a path to deliver. Well, that was something I wanted to, to ask you about, actually. I mean, the, the the Emma question, right? So she came in April 2017. Um, she has a background in consumer uh, companies, not in pharma. And that seems to be one of the things, um, at least the reporting of the agitating that Elliott uh, management has been doing is around uh, Emma Walmsley's background and whether she's the appropriate person to run, quote unquote, new GSK, the you know specialty drugs and vaccines business combined and not the consumer business and making this argument that other pharma companies are run by people with backgrounds in pharma. Now, that's different from saying other pharma companies are run by actual doctors because very few are. But Matt, I'm just curious in your, you know, decades of experience covering this industry, does it make a difference? Are there examples of people who did not come from pharma who did a great job running uh, a pharma company? There are so many examples of people who were not researchers who did a great job running a pharma company. Uh, Ken Frazier being an obvious one recently, I think. Yeah, wasn't wasn't Ken a lawyer by? Right. Ken was indeed a lawyer. He he started working for Merck defending their air conditioning business that they used to have. But he also worked at Merck for decades before he became CEO. But he worked at Merck for decades. He was steeped in Merck. He believes he he believes in Merck, mm -hmm. I think is a fair statement. But I I tend to think I still think that a lot of the very best CEOs are people who are really steeped in research in that part, but people have certainly done a good job who came from other backgrounds. The background question for Walmsley has been a a question from the beginning. It's one of the reasons that she brought on Hal Barron. Um, and, but the other problem here is that drug pipelines just take a long time to turn around. It takes so many years for these things to happen that there's a problem that if you're the turnaround artist and there's a hiccup, you're kind of left with nothing. So it's hard to judge. On the other hand, you you have analysts like Jeffrey Porges, who's a well-regarded uh, um, pharma biotech analyst, uh, saying that the vaccine business is compelling, but that he's skeptical about the rest of the company's R&D growth drivers. So they're having trouble convincing people that a lot of their... Uh, a lot of their drugs are are going to perform as well as they think, and in particular in oncology. Um, now they've got a lot of stuff in immunology. They've got hepatitis B programs, and their HIV business is is very big. Uh, there, there, however, there's a patent cliff, um, and Wall Street loves to worry about patent cliffs. So they've they've got this whole mess of things, and there there really isn't a nice animating. This is going to be our giant product, um, you know, sitting there for them. So, you know, 
I, I think that that less of that is probably Walmsley's fault, but very frequently when investors get unhappy with the CEO, the solution is to change the CEO. So it'll be interesting to see what the board does and, and how deep that support runs. I guess it's the old fire the manager. Yeah. Trick. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you can point to R&D heads at pharma companies who've managed to out-survive multiple um, CEOs, you know, that they, they, they have had much longer tenures. And their tenures don't tend to be that long these days either. Um, there's a lot of switching the managers. So Matt, what's next on this story? Like, where, where is it going? Well, the, the the big question is is can they get through the spinoff with the uh, with the current team intact? GSK could use some some bigger R and D wins. I do think that they're suffering a bit from having their vaccine business be their crown jewel and not having delivered a COVID vaccine. Not just from a financial perspective, but I think there's a halo effect around that. Um, I think a lot of people have a lot of faith in Pfizer's vaccine business, which before this was really built around one vaccine. Matt, I wonder your take on the COVID situation for GSK. Um, Do you think there is a lack of understanding of the role GSK was playing in the partnership with Sanofi, where what seemed to have, well, and I don't even know if this is right, but what seemed to have failed was the the antigen, um, which is Sanofi's part. Um, in that it didn't stimulate a strong enough immune response among the elderly, but maybe that's the adjuvant's fault, and that was GSK. You can't separate the adjuvant and the antigen, I don't think. I mean, it's it's still surprising to me that that didn't work. It it should be relatively similar to the Novavax approach. Um, it may have been like a very simple mistake stumble, and they lost a lot of time on it. Developing these vaccines wasn't easy. It's worth a, the data for the Metacoco vaccine, which also involves the GSK adjuvant, looked pretty good. The problem with that vaccine is that it's made in plants, and right now they really can't make very many doses, so it kind of doesn't enter the conversation. Um, yeah, are plants better than eggs? <laughs> Depends on your diet, I suppose. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And they were talking about the Metacoco um, flu vaccine that they're developing. It, one hopes plants are bigger than eggs, but you still have to find a place to grow them. Um, so, well, Matt, I was going to say actually, I mean, this kind of gets to that existential crisis point because GSK, so synonymous with vaccines, this massive and successful vaccine business, in each of these cases we're describing, they're kind of a passenger in the process for developing the most important like vaccine call to arms in any of our lifetimes. That's true. I think this gets into to how COVID's going to end up reshaping the pharma industry. Wait, that's interesting. T- talk about that. <laughs> well, I'm not sure what the answer is, but there's a real sense of the companies that delivered a COVID vaccine. First, they obviously get a halo, but they also, and we'll see how important messenger RNA is in vaccines going forward. It is going to be interesting to see if the companies that that were not as aggressive in developing um, COVID vaccines, whether first there's obviously a bit a business developing around those. There was initially a lot of talk about it being not for profit, but Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech are are doing quite well on that. But does that kind of reshape who we think of as an R and D leader? who we think of as a leader in vaccines and all the kind of intangible benefits in partnering and deal-making and even negotiation with governments that come from that. Um, But 
you know, Glaxo does have a very nice vaccine business. They do have a very nice immunology business. They do have some interesting cancer assets that they've bought. Um, They haven't delivered an internally developed great cancer drug that can transform the company, which is what I think a lot of people want. Um, And there was a sense at that meeting that I think investors would have really liked to have been told where to focus more. And instead, you got this very big listing of assets, um, which I don't think generated confidence in those assets working. I mean, they mentioned a universal flu vaccine very briefly. If that works, that alone could be super transformative. Well, that was the tweet of yours that caught my attention and made me realize you were you were live tweeting the GSK Investor Day where you tweeted the flu plan. I used the famous if a miracle happens cartoon where you have a scientist at the at the blackboard and he's describing his theory of everything and he writes in the middle a miracle happens and someone says I think you need to be clearer about step 2. Um, I did feel that way several times during this, that there was so much detail and I really wanted, I really wanted to know how the miracle happened and didn't feel like I was getting an entirely clear picture of that, which maybe I need to do more work. Matt, thank you so much again for your time. Thank you guys. We wanted to interrupt the podcast for one moment to let listeners know about a very cool stat event that is coming up soon. It's called the Breakthrough Science Summit. And as its name implies, we will be exploring breakthroughs in technology and procedures that have remade the world of health and medicine. And with our keynote speakers, we'll take you inside these innovations, examining how they're developed, adopted, and paid for. We'll also take a look at the breakthroughs that haven't yet hit the market, but have the potential to redefine health and medicine in the years to come. The list of speakers is long and distinguished, but among them are Jim Allison, the Nobel Prize winning immunologist and godfather of cancer immunotherapy, Francis Collins, director of the NIH, and Katherine Jansen, the Pfizer vaccine scientist who helped, of course, create its COVID-19 vaccine. This is a virtual event running over two days, July 13th and 14th. Listeners of this podcast can get a discount on registration. Go to statnews.com slash summit and use the discount code P-O-D, all lowercase. Colorectal cancer, long considered a disease affecting older people, has been mysteriously on the rise among the young and healthy, particularly men. And the disease is especially dangerous in what researchers have called hot spots of death, counties around the country where men under 49 face an alarmingly high risk of developing late-stage colorectal cancer that proves fatal. Our stat colleague Nicholas St. Fleur is well acquainted with this issue. He wrote an excellent story published this week about that inexplicable rise in colon cancer deaths and its disproportionate effect on black men in America. And he also got a colonoscopy himself and invited this podcast, Hyacinth Empanado, to film each step of the experience for a video that went up alongside that story. And he joins us now to talk about the entire project. Nick, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So, Nick, your story begins with the shocking passing of the actor Chadwick Boseman, who died from colorectal cancer last year at the age of 43. How did that tragic news set this project in motion? Goodness, it was, I just remember on that day, uh, scrolling on my phone, coming across someone who said, you know, young black boys are losing their heroes. I had no idea what he meant, but as I continued scrolling, I saw the CNN announcement that Chadwick Boseman had died. And then I saw he had died from uh, colon cancer, which just really struck me hard. Um, 
since I have a family history of colon cancer. So just watching someone, you know, the Black Panther, someone at peak physical condition um, pass away from this this disease, it really struck me and it made me realize, wow, this is something that could affect me as well. I need to take this more seriously. And your story illustrates this alarming rise in colorectal cancer cases and how it dovetails with the discovery of those hotspots of death around the country. That is such a terrifying phrase. So what did the data show and how do researchers explain that? Right. So what the data is showing is that there are certain counties in the U.S. where um, young men of all races are more likely to uh, die from colorectal cancer. Uh, The majority of these counties are in the South, about 92% of it. And they found something like people in these places or have a, uh, young men in these areas have a 24% higher risk of dying from uh, early onset colorectal cancer. Uh, When they adjusted that for smoking, the risk was still about 12% higher. And this is for, you know, all young men. But what's interesting is that the disease itself is on the rise in uh, people under the age of 49, especially since the 1990s. So what they're finding in these um, counties is that, you know, they're trying to figure out why exactly, what is it about these counties? And they do not know. Uh, One thing they find interesting is that a lot of people in these counties uh, are predominantly uh, black, about 31% as compared to uh, about 13%. Um, And black men, we know, of all ages are already at a higher risk of dying from colorectal cancer. Um, They have uh, about a um, 24% Uh, more likely to develop the disease and 47% more likely to die from it than white men. So this reporting process became quite personal. You mentioned before, you know, feeling like you you needed to get a colonoscopy yourself. But I was curious, can you tell us about how you came to the decision to have that documented on video and then how that experience informed your approach to the written story we were just talking about that accompanies the resulting project? You know, I realized that I had been putting it off. It's something I knew in my family history. My mother had been diagnosed at the age of 34. And I remember being young, like about, I don't know, seven or eight and and, and watching her go through, you know, this process. I don't know if I really grasped at that moment that there was a chance I could lose my mother. Uh, Luckily, she had, you know, a colonoscopy early and they were able to find it early and they were able to save her life. Uh, She just needed some some surgery. to, to remove the cancer. But I decided to document it because I wanted more people to see that this is an easy process. Um, through my reporting, I've learned more and more about barriers that prevent people from doing this, young folk, um, especially uh, black folk as well, uh, whether those be stigmas, whether those be uh, lack of access. So I wanted to just kind of show that, you know, this is important. But I also want to show the importance of knowing your family history. As many experts have told me, uh, you know, family secrets uh, They take lives. So we need to be open about cancers and other diseases in our family because, you know, these are very personal things, but we really need to to, to share it. And 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 Nick, in your piece, you included the story of Omar Carter, a, a youth basketball coach from Jackson, Mississippi. Tell us about him. Goodness. Thank you so much for asking. Um, Omar's story is a story that reflects, you know, something that many people go through, especially black men, younger black men. Um, The researcher who I spoke with, um, Charles Rogers over at the University of Utah School of Medicine, was telling me a bit about these these barriers that young men can face. One in particular being, you know, masculinity. So Omar is a uh, very fit, larger guy, uh, tough guy. um, And 
you know, he noticed one day that he had blood in his stool. Uh, his wife, um, uh, Jahan, was concerned, um, said he should go check it out. He went to a doctor to go check it out, and the doctor suggested he go to a gastroenterologist. Um, but he decided not to go to that meeting. You know, it had to do with, in one case, he had work to do, you know, working with, with the kids the, uh, for basketball and such. But also he had an aversion to, to doctors after seeing his mother die from um, lung cancer. And because of that, uh, you know, that really kind of, uh, it, it shook him watching and this happens to so many people. They see a loved person. You know, they look like they're doing fine. They go see the doctor. They come out with this diagnosis. And then they just start to wilt, wilt away. And and, and many people view that and they're like, I don't want to do that myself. So that along with um, uh, some of the, the, the fighting that his um, wife had to do with the doctors, the story really illustrates the importance of either being your own advocate or having someone who can advocate on your behalf to make sure that doctors are taking your symptoms seriously. Uh, like I said, he was bleeding um, profusely from the rectum. And when he went to tell the doctors, you know, a, a year or so later, some of them didn't believe it, brushed it off as hemorrhoids, um, which may have, you know, delayed him getting the care that he needed. As we've spoken about, we're seeing more and more people getting this at a younger age before even 45. So listen to your body. So, you know, I, I saw your story actually this week come up because you were on Good Morning America. Um, it came across my Twitter feed and I was like, hey, I know him. What's been the response to to doing this? I mean, I immediately was like, oh, my gosh, Nick is the new Katie Couric. Like she got a colonoscopy <laughs> on camera and now Nick did. And this is like the whole new. Yeah, maybe this that, is dating that, us. Adam. That's exactly <laughs> what I thought, too. Like, yeah, Nick and Katie Couric. Yeah. I'm I'm happy you brought that up because, you know, something I, I, I wanted to say when I was discussing this with my editors, at one point the conversation came up, well, you know, Katie Couric already did this. Uh, what would we be adding that's new? I, I, I had to stop my editor and say, what do you mean Katie Couric did this? Like, when? Like, what? <laughs> I, I, I was too young to really realize that, you know, Katie Couric had done this. I, I went and I watched her, you know, I watched her doing it. But I realized, you know, if, if I didn't know and I've been, you know, really researching this, then there are probably a lot of people in my age demographic who, who, who don't realize how easy of a process this is, especially with the rise of early onset, you know, colorectal cancer. So once this story came out and once it was featured on Good Morning America, I overwhelming response from people saying, thank you so much for doing this. You know, you might be saving lives with this, but just the number of people who, who, who were young saying, you know, I was diagnosed at 28 or I was diagnosed at 35 or just last year I lost my, my, my boyfriend at, you know, 27 or just last year, you know, I lost one of my, uh, you know, uh, my parents at this. And, and I was just blown away by how many people have been affected by this disease. And now I want to I want to kind of uh, pair that with something that I think is interesting, being that there are gastroenterologists and, and other scientists in this field who feel that colorectal cancer can actually be eliminated in our lifetime because it is so preventable and treatable if you catch it early. Really quick question before we say goodbye to Nick. Uh, Nick, you know, one one thing that I wonder, you know, hearing you talk about this, like, it seems like, yeah, everybody should go get a colonoscopy or use the the poop in a box test. <laughs> um, but can you get it paid for by insurance if you're under a certain age? Like what, how accessible is that to people? That is a great question. And I'm actually planning, I, I, I'm trying, I'm going to convince my editors to do a follow-up video because I had to actually have a fight with my insurance company. Um, you know, I, it, they covered 
most of it at first. Um, and I was actually, my jaw kind of dropped when I saw just what the actual price tag of it was. Um, so according to, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the recommended age, you're supposed to get this anyone at the age of 45, correct? So it's supposed to be completely covered, no out-of-pocket um, expenses. Um, and, you know, that's still rolling out for, for some health insurance. They only do that at the age 50 above. If you're younger than that, even with a family history, they may fight you on it. So I ended up with a, a sticker tag of about, I don't know, it was like about $1,200, which, mind you, I was like, what? I was on the phone with the insurance company saying, I'm pretty sure you're supposed to cover this. I sent them, you know, an appeal. And I think I may have sent like another appeal. Um, and just Two days ago, actually, right before the story uh, ran, I got an, um, a letter in the mail saying, like, you know, we're going to cover this fully. But I, I was just thinking to myself, gosh, I really had to fight that. This is such another thing that is standing in the way of people getting tested because, um, you know, getting screened because because the cost can be so high. So I'm hoping to continue reporting on that um, in, in the hopes of maybe also, you know, lowering those barriers, those financial barriers that prevent people from getting screened and, 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 and you know, hopefully help save lives. Well, Nick, it's a great project. Thank you for putting all the work that went into it and for putting yourself out there in the process. And thanks for coming on the podcast today. I appreciate it. Thank you all so much. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you ever listened this far in the podcast. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We should put more Easter eggs at the end of the podcast so people will listen to the end. <laughs> and of course, if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.